Welcome to Experience Junkies. On this show, I spotlight meeting and event professionals, global travelers, jet setters, and more to relive the moments we never want to forget. More importantly, we'll attempt as best we can to transport listeners to transformational points in our lives, sharing our observations and emotions behind these stories. By diving into the indelible impact these experiences have had on us, we decode small takeaways about how to be better humans than we were yesterday. Hey, experienced junkies. On today's episode, I chat with Paige McClanahan. Paige is a travel journalist. She's also a contributing writer to the New York Times. She also hosts the Better Travel Podcast. Listen to our conversation where we talk about her life as an expat after leaving the United States more than 14 years ago, not only as a solo female traveler, but as a married woman and now mother of two children and the experiences that that entails raising American kids abroad. We also dive into what it means to be a better traveler and what better travel actually is. So sit back, relax, enjoy this conversation with myself and Paige McClanahan of the Better Travel Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Experience Junkies Podcast. Today I have with me the lovely Paige McClanahan, host of the Better Travel Podcast, and I'm so excited for our conversation. Paige, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Absolutely. Absolutely. Paige, tell the crew, the audience a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah. So my name is Paige McClanahan. I'm a travel journalist and a regular contributor to the travel section of the New York Times. I'm also the host, as you said, of the Better Travel podcast. And yeah, I've just been a lover of travel for as long as I can remember. And I grew up in the United States and I live in the French Alps now with my family and I do my work from here. Wonderful, wonderful. I think when people hear that you're a travel journalist, it just sounds like such a sexy job. And I, you know, <laughs> I, I, you know, being an event planner myself, I've gotten that comment a lot. Like, oh, that just must be so much fun. Your job sounds so glamorous, but you know, I recognize that there's a lot behind the scenes that don't pe- people don't see. So can you tell us how you became a travel journalist and kind of what's some of the things behind the scenes that maybe aren't as glamorous or sexy that uh, the po- general population isn't aware of? Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, yeah, my very first gig, my very first travel writing gig was actually um, updating a travel guidebook. So um, not writing one, but just updating it, you know, so that means like checking every single entry and updating the phone numbers and checking the opening hours and, you know, some pretty dry stuff. But I was thrilled to get this job. And um, I, my then boyfriend, who's now my husband, and I were living in Sierra Leone, which is a little West African country, beautiful country. And I got the job updating the rat guide to Sierra Leone. And um, so it was a fantastic gig. So on the plus side, you know, it gave me an excuse to travel all around Sierra Leone and meet all sorts of people who I would never have met otherwise. But yeah, there's just a lot of, especially for that type of travel writing, where it's really kind of fact finding and, you know, information gathering, you get to go to a lot of places. Yeah, it's, you know, it kind of gets a little bit samey toward the end. And also the pay for that kind of work, especially is, um, yeah, it's not, it's not very much at all. Um, and I didn't have any, I, they didn't, they didn't give me an expenses budget at all. So I was just trying to kind oh. of get, you know, rides from friends or my husband was traveling around the the country for his work. So I would like hop along with him. 
but it was in the end, I basically kind of broke even. So that's probably something that's not so glamorous about it is the money. <laughs> I was supporting myself financially through like other kind of corporate editing work that I was doing that I was, uh, you know, earning money from, but that was a, that was a fun job. And it also opened up more sort of opportunities for me in terms of travel writing. So from there, I started pitching stories to places like the Washington Post and, um, you know, in-flight magazines and stuff like that. So I got some of my first kind of published clips outside of the, the guidebook, kind of off the back of that work. Yeah, yeah. But I'd say to be a travel writer, you have to really love the work for the work's sake. Don't get into right. it for the money. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, point taken, point taken. You have to really love the travel. And to me, it's more the journalism part of it. I think as an outsider looking in, it just looks sexy. Like, oh, you get to go to these places and stay at these different um, like hotels or venues. And but at the end of the day, you're a journalist. So it's not just about going and experiencing these things, but also making sure that you are capturing that, taking, you know, volumes and volumes of notes, making sure that you can tell the story um, and also the facts about what you've seen. So I think that's different than what a normal traveler would experience when they're on a trip, would you say? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, that makes me think of last August, I had the chance to travel to Barcelona to write a story for the New York Times. And that was looking at, um, that was more or less of a sort of a traditional travel writing and more sort of reporting on some of the impacts of the travel and tourism industry. So I was mm -hmm. looking at sort of, air, you know, the city's relationship with Airbnb, which, you know, has had its ups and downs. But I was in the city for maybe four days or something. And, um, yeah, I got to see a lot of uh, stuff, but it was mainly I'm going to meetings with people, you know, I'm kind of walking around with people, I'm trying to track down people. So I enjoyed some great food. And, you know, I kind of stepped into some sites here and there between meetings, but it's not the kind of thing that I could have done. You know, I, if had I been in Barcelona on vacation, there's no way I could have done that job at the same time. Like it really, right. you know, when you're out reporting, whether for a guidebook or for a story, you really have to throw yourself into that. And if you're able to do little mm -hmm. fun stuff on the side, great. Yeah, you can't. At first, I kind of, when I was first getting into travel journalism, I kind of thought, okay, well, I'll go on the, to this place with my family on vacation and I'll write a story at the same time. And like, right. that might work a little bit, but it's just stressful <laughs> for everyone. <laughs> it's probably similar to the whole working from home when, you know, everything shut down two years ago and everyone was at home. Like for the people who were working from home normally, they had their routine and, and yeah, they can get all those things done. But once the whole family was home, there's different distractions and different obligations that you wouldn't have. So to me, it's kind of like a parallel situation there. Yeah, 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 exactly. Difficult to juggle everything at the same time. <laughs> Absolutely. Travel seems to just be in your, your bones, Paige. Um, as you mentioned, you left the U.S. you know quite a while ago, about 14 years ago, and you've lived in five different countries since then. So tell us about like your early adulthood, because that's pretty young to you know flee the uh, U.S. And what prompted that expat lifestyle? Yeah, yeah, it's funny. You know, I grew up in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, in a very sort of steady, you know, I was, I kind of graduated from high school with the same kids I went to ballet class with when I was three, you know, very sort of steady, stable environment. My parents still live, right. you know, in my childhood home. Um, oh, but I nice. just kind of always felt like the world, 
you know, I guess I just always felt like I was going to live out in the world somewhere. It was just really kind of deep within me and um, took a few trips like with my family as a kid. But then when I went off on my own, I just was determined to move overseas. And I didn't know how I was going to do it for a while. I thought about joining the Peace Corps. But yeah, I ended up getting, I did a master's degree and um, at Duke University, actually. And I did a summer internship in Geneva through that master's program. And that was my first, yeah, I'd studied abroad and stuff, but that was really the first step toward my moving overseas permanently. I ended up getting a job at the place where I interned that summer. So after I finished graduate school, age 26, I moved to Geneva um, and I got a job as an editor at a think tank there. So that was my first step overseas. And that was in 2008. Yeah, I was 26 years old. And sorry, mom, dad, I haven't lived in the United States since then. Um, <laughs> from there, and, and I met my husband in Geneva and from there, we just kind of, and he, he's British and also has this sort of wanderlust that I do. And um, from Geneva, we moved to West Africa, to Sierra Leone, as I was describing. And then we moved to the UK, which is where he was, uh, where, which is where he's from. And we were there for about two years. From there, we moved to Nairobi, Kenya, where we lived for about four years. And then from there, we moved to here in the French Alps, where we've been living for almost four years now, too. So lots of moving around. But yeah, I don't know. We both just really have itchy feet. We're starting to change now, though, because we have two children. Our daughters are now five and a half and eight years old. And yeah, we've been here, as I said, for almost four years. We really want to give them a steady place to grow up, which is what we both grew up with. So, um, yeah, we're hoping to stay here in France and put down some roots. So it feels like I had a, you know, a period of lots of wandering, but it's kind of now right. coming to an end, at least for a little while. We'll see what happens when, you know, <laughs> yeah, when I we're mean, empty nesters. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. There's always that time when they flee the coop and then, you know, then you guys can have that freedom to kind of jump about. I, I love that you kind of mentioned as the kids came into play, how that, change the dynamic of, you know, the, the wanderlust, if you will, because I was going to ask you about that, you know, seems like you are teaching them young about exploring the world. But you know, how do you view traveling and like the expat lifestyle differently through the lens of parenthood? Oh, wow. That's such that's such a great question. And I could answer that one. I could spend an hour answering that one. I'll, um, but, you know, I mean, it does, I think it offers tremendous opportunities and also some challenges that we're still learning about, that we're still exploring. I mean, our daughters have American passports and they have British passports. Um, wow. They're growing up in France. Um, one of them was born in the UK. The other one was born in Kenya. So the little one who was born mm -hmm. in Kenya, she's very confused as to why she's not Kenyan. Like, why doesn't she have a Kenyan passport? Whereas her sister, who was born in the UK, has a British passport. Like, why doesn't she, you know... Exactly. So they have American passports and British passports, but they don't really know what it means to be American or British. I mean, they're really, they're French children. Like when they do any, meeny, miny, mo, they do the French version. You know, they're doing, they're right. learning French sort of hand clapping things. They're really French kids growing up in a French school. So in that sense, I really feel like an immigrant parent. Like I'm kind of struggling Absolutely. to, like, I don't exactly understand what they're doing at school. My French is good, but not perfect. And I don't know mm -hmm. the kind of cultural references yeah, I don't know. Lots of opportunities, but also some challenges that we're, I hope to sort of be able to help them navigate as they grow up and then go off to find their own place in the world. But I will add just briefly, we're, we're hoping to stay long enough in France to be, to apply for French nationality. Um, and that's mainly for our daughters because they are growing up here in France and they speak French like French children. And we would right. love for them to have the chance to 
make a life here as you know adults if um, if that's what they would want to do. So, yeah, we hope to apply for French nationality when we qualify. So essentially, your household is kind of like a tricultural household. You've got the U.S., you've got the U.K., and then you're all located in France. And like that's kind of like the base culture that your kids really understand. So talk about a mind meld of, <laughs> of, of you know, different backgrounds. How do you kind of make sure to instill... Uh, reinforce, if you will, or introduce them to like your American customs, your husband's UK customs and, and, and connection with the family that um, do still live abroad. Yeah, that's a great question. I have to say, I sort of joke sometimes that I'm like way more into Thanksgiving than I ever would be if we lived in the United <laughs> States. Like Thanksgiving is a right. big deal in our household. Right, like, right. We, have like, to we have... need to understand what it means. Exactly. There's no messing around with the menu. Like we have the Thanksgiving menu. You know, I find my cranberries. Gosh darn it. You know, and when uh, we have that. So we talk about that. So, yeah, through the holidays, also through... um through stories. The, um, yeah. Our daughters love listening to audiobooks and the Laura Ingalls Wilder, like Little House series, and the Ramona books they're listening to now. And these sorts of things, you know, kind of offer a little window into the culture. And of course, through visiting families. So we try to spend a good amount mm -hmm. of time with, you know, my husband's family in the UK and with my family in the US. We try to, in both places, we've put them into kind of summer or like holiday kind of day camps when we've been right. there for long enough so that they can make some friends with local kids and get a sense of, you know, what a childhood is like there. Um, so that, you know, hopefully by the time it comes for them to make their own choices about where they want to live in the world or study, they'll have at least a good impression of what these kind of different cultures are, are like, because yeah, they, you know, even like US, UK, you know, very similar in a lot of ways, but Right. Very different in a lot of ways. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Hello, experienced junkies. Thanks for listening to the show. If you are in need of a show host, an event MC, a panel moderator, or speaker, feel free to contact me at Deanna at DeannaCamille.com for more information. I would love to come to your show, your event, or your experience and help set the tone with the emotions and objectives your organization has for your guests. Reach out today for more information on how you can bring the experienced junkies vibe to your next engagement. Your family being located in Europe, you've got a unique privilege in that international travel is much easier than if you were on a different continent. So what mm. does that look like for you, your husband, your children in terms of your normal holidays and vacations, you know, whether that's pre-pandemic or during pandemic, you know, how does that look like for you guys? Well, yeah, it's it's so funny because we do, um, we live about, yeah, we live about an hour's drive from the border with Switzerland. So, mm -hmm. you know, we can have a day trip to another country, right? Because we go into Geneva to like have lunch with friends yeah. or something and which is right. definitely not the way I grew up. No. <laughs> Um, yeah, an hour drive from Raleigh would have, uh, the Chapel Hill area was essentially, you know, you still had, wouldn't even make it to Charlotte. You, yeah, you can't even get to Virginia, you know, it's like, so, but yeah, no, we really try to make the most of it. And now that our, our kids are old enough to kind of enjoy exploring. So mm -hmm. they have, and, in, and it's great with the French kind of school um, schedule, they get two week breaks. Basically, they have four two week breaks um, during every right. school year. During the two-week break they have in sort of late October, early November, um, this past year, we went to Paris. We took the train up to Paris, which is like, you know, three and a half hours on the train, 
for us and, um, you know, had a wonderful break there where they get to see sort of their, you know, their capital city, which they had never been to before. And then, yeah, we go to Switzerland to, you know, visit friends and to go hiking or skiing, you know, can just drive there. And then, um, yeah, over our most recent break, um, which they have a two-week break in February, we went to Florence, which for us is about a seven-hour drive from home. So pretty doable. And we were down there for exactly a week. So it was fun. Wonderful. Wonderful. So what were the highlights of going to Florence, uh, you know, as a family of four? Oh, yeah, it was wonderful. And I hadn't been to Florence since I was 18 years old. And my friend Janice and I did this kind of like month long Eurail trip. And I think we had like two nights in Florence or something like I have a vague sort of sleep deprived memory of it. But so, yeah, I was super excited to go back. And I thought, what, you know, better time to go to Florence This really, you know, an area that's known for being really touristy than in mid-February when probably there aren't going to be too many crowds. And actually, yeah, it was was really nice. So um, yeah, some highlights of our trip there. Well, we found this beautiful little house to stay in and we found it through a service or a platform called Fairbnb, which is really cool. It's a lot like Airbnb. They have a really, except it's a cooperative model and they have a really strong focus on sort of community building and stuff. Um, and we had just a beautiful, like centuries old house with a little garden that we were staying in. And the host reminded me of like Italian versions of my parents. Um, so that was, that was definitely a highlight, the place where we were staying. Nice. We, you know, we tried to keep the museums at a sort of a reasonable level for the children. For two children. <laughs> for, yeah, exactly. But they were really, there was some complaining, of course, but they were just absolutely gobsmacked by the painting of the birth of Venus, the Botticelli painting, which is in the Uffizi gallery. You know, we kind of were walking around this gallery and the girls were sort of like, yeah, okay, a little bit interested, a little bit complaining, like, oh. Right. And then we walked into this room with this, beautiful painting illuminating this whole wall um, with this kind of gorgeous woman in the middle of the the ocean. And our daughters just mm-hmm. like stood there with their like jaws open and they loved oh, wow. that. And, um, and then when you know, kind of started this whole conversation about mythology and who she was, and I'm like Googling frantically to be able to answer their questions. Thank um, God for Wi-Fi. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, but that's really like led to other conversations about mythology and Venus and who she was. And we bought a little like birth of Venus puzzle in the shop and we've been doing it at home since we got back. So Mm -hmm. seeing that piece of art really capture their imagination, that was really a highlight for me. And one that I was, yeah, maybe I had sort of part of me had hoped that would happen, but I wasn't, I wasn't sort of allowing myself to have that expectation, shall we say. And then one final thing, maybe we had one day out um, in this little village called Fiesole, which is about Mm -hmm. 30 or 40 minute drive outside of Florence. And there's some beautiful ruins there kind of you know ancient etruscan ruins that you can sort of just run around and explore there's an old um, you know amphitheater that you can explore and we found that fascinating and just such a cool way to show the kids um this aspect of history in you know in this landscape that was like totally interactive and they can sort of run around and imagine where the baths were and where the temple was and so that was really cool too fiesole is a beautiful a beautiful area up in the hills kind of above florence Cool. It's nice that not only did you, you know, you have that experience in the museum with the kids, them really appreciating this historical piece of art, but you've been able to kind of 
prolong that experience by, you know, getting some toys that, that kind of reference that piece of art, reading books and, and diving more into almost making it like a learning experience for them as well. So, you know, can you talk about other opportunities you've had traveling with either your children or just you and your spouse that, you know, you had that one experience on site, but you were able to kind of prolong the enjoyment via, you know, activities after the fact. Oh, oh yeah, interesting, interesting. Let me think about that. Well, it makes me think of our trip to Paris in mm -hmm. October, where again we had sort of like low ex, you know, or I was trying to keep my expectations sort of in check. But um, right. somebody had told us that the Pompidou Center, which is like this modern art kind of gallery and center, had some good stuff for kids. So I kind of thought, okay, well let's give it a shot. And we went, and oh my gosh, we were in there for like four or five hours and we had to drag oh, nice. our children out um, <laughs> because they have this, well, they have a fantastic like children's gallery um, mm -hmm. with all sorts of cool interactive stuff. And we were there for this um, Georgia O'Keeffe exhibition that was running mm. at the end of last year. And then we were just wandering around the, um, the kind of general, you know, permanent exhibition of modern art. I don't know. I just kind of had a thought in the gift shop earlier and I bought our girls a notepad each and a piece of paper. And okay. um, our younger daughter ended up sitting in front of a painting by Matisse for like 20 minutes on these little stools that you can have and just kind of copying mm. it out on her in her notebook, you know, as a painting of like yeah. a girl, you know, sitting at a table. And so basically that really got her interested in trying to copy art in her notebook. So since we have come home, this is something that she's like, kind of, it's just like occurred to her that one can do. You can like look at a beautiful painting and then kind of make your own version of it. So yeah, I, I think that's the way that, you know, I've seen my children sort of interact with, with artwork and bring mm. parts of it home with us after the, after the visit. But yeah, we also went to Disneyland Paris and got them enormous cotton candies and stuff. So it wasn't all like art. <laughs> <laughs> they of talk course, about the Disneyland do... Paris. They talk about Disneyland Paris more than they talk about the Pompidou Center. But you know, I'm gonna right. I'm gonna hold on to what I can. <laughs> hey, the memories are for you just as much as they are for the for the children. <laughs> um, and you just reminded me. I was on a as I mentioned, we, we talked before starting recording. My kids live in Spain currently with their dad, and I visited them over um, the Christmas break. And um, my uh, nine-year-old, she, it was kind of hilarious. She had this little notebook that she was taking with her everywhere. And, and then, you know, we'd be doing something, you know, sightseeing in some site and she'd be sitting there just, you know, scribbling in her notebook. And then finally, like on the last day of the trip, we're like, okay, Rachel, you know, you, let, let us see this notebook. And it was just so funny the way she was transcribing essentially like our trip and different places we would stop and like, not just what happened, but like her thoughts about it. And like, well, I'm really enjoying it because X, Y, and Z. And so it was just, it was kind of amazing to see, not just like watch her enjoy these different things, but then how she's processing it in the moment. And, you know, after the fact, that's like a memento that she can go back and look at, oh yeah, when we went to, I can't remember what it was called, but it was in, we were in the outskirts of like Malaga area of Spain. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when we went to that site, you know, this is how, what I was thinking and this is what we saw. And, you know, that coupled with the photos and everything, it's just amazing how 
their little brains process it and and take in that culture and that experience alongside you know how we process it and it kind of leads me to my next question because you host a podcast called better travel and i feel like you kind of started talking about that when you um mentioned the fair bnb um in terms of it being a cooperative but how do you try and travel and be conscious of the impact that you're leaving, but still, you know, see the world and, 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 and consume uh, as a as a tourist. Yeah. Oh, man, that's the that's the million dollar question right there. Right. But yeah, no, no, the podcast, I mean, it really came out of, well, let me start by saying so here, since we moved to France, we live mm-hmm. in a really touristy area here, like the economy of the area where we live is you know, almost completely based on tourism. You know, a lot of skiers are in town right now. Um, our village mm-hmm. is really full of people coming on ski vacations. And um, in the summer, we get lots of hikers and stuff. So when we moved here, that just really gave me a different perspective on tourism. You know, basically mm. all of our neighbors, all the other parents, our kids' school, they all, you know, they're ski instructors. They run crepe shops. They run restaurants. They run shuttle services to and from Geneva Airport. You know, really, right. we're in a tourism economy here. So I really see the value, the enormous value of tourism, both from an individual perspective like me. Oh, my gosh, I can't, you know, I can't begin to say how much my life has been enriched by travel and by tourism. And then I look at our community here and it really is making life possible in this place that, you know, 100 years ago, this was 100 percent agriculture. Right. Well, they had some like stone masonry and stuff. But basically this Mm -hmm. village was really on the decline in terms of population before the tourism industry kind of started to ramp up in the kind of 50s and 60s. Yeah, I'll just start by saying I really see the tremendous value of tourism. But then, of course, like through my reporting, I've also, you know, encountered a lot of the more negative impacts of tourism. And I think it's just um, I find these kind of questions just really fascinating. And I think that in terms of trying to navigate them, understanding them and understanding what's at play is really the first step. And so I come at these sort of issues really from a point of genuine curiosity and genuine desire to understand so that I can, you know, make the most informed decisions. So, yeah, so for the podcast, I mean, for my reporting for the New York Times, I was just having so many fascinating conversations with academics or with business leaders or with people you know, who were kind of just teaching me so much about these topics. And of course, when you write a story, you know, that fantastic interview that went on for an hour is going to get like this much space in the text, right? <laughs> that and two I sentences just, in a paragraph. Yeah, <laughs> if that, I mean, I, you know, for like, for a lot of, like for that Barcelona story, I probably interviewed 2000 people and maybe six of them made it into the article or wow. something. You know, it's like, so I, I was just like, I really wanted, I thought that it would be really interesting and really useful for, you know, for listeners to kind of have access to these conversations. I felt so privileged as a journalist, I get to call people up and ask them interesting questions. So I just kind of thought this would be a nice way to share, you know, these conversations with the world, you know, with people who are interested. And um, yeah, and I think that, you know, coming back from the pandemic, you know, we're all really realizing the value of travel and maybe we took it for granted before. And I think there's mm-hmm. a real desire among people to, yeah, I don't know, think, be more thoughtful in their travel and more sort of explicit in their travel choices. And so I think there's kind of an appetite for for this among, among you know, the general public, among travelers as well. So, yeah, that's kind of where I'm coming from. How would you define what better travel means to you, you know, from the standpoint of 
keeping in mind the economic impacts that travel has, but also sustainability. And even, you know, as yourself living in a touristy town, having respect for the local inhabitants and the people who are native to that area, how would you define better travel in that sense? Ooh, that's a great question. Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> better travel, I mean, in a really general sense, it travel it's travel that maximizes the positive impacts and minimizes the negative impacts, right? And that can mean, and I, and I didn't say sort of eliminates the negative impacts, right? Because that's never possible. But, you know, exactly. we're, I didn't call it the best or the perfect travel podcast, like better travel podcast, right? Like, let's all try to be a little bit better. Maximizing the positive, minimizing the negative. And I think as travelers, like, you know, one really critical step that we can all take, and it's not just sort of, you know, it's more of a mindset shift than anything else. It's just to imagine yourself as a house guest in someone else's home, you know, and Mm -hmm. being aware of that. I mean, you know, I've told this story before where, you know, we live at the end of this, in a really rural spot where we are right here. And there are like cross country ski trails just across the way there. And this time of year, our road gets quite full of people parking there to go use the cross country ski trails and stuff. And um, yeah, I've seen multiple times people just like parking there and just at the edge of our yard, going to the bathroom right there. Oh yard. my God. Because that's not really... where I thought you were taking it. Yeah. <laughs> no, they just like, they need to pee and they're in this sort of area where there's a lot of forest sort of around and it doesn't look like anybody's looking. There's nobody driving by. So let me just pop right. a squat. And I'm just sitting wow. here, like, I'll be sitting, like, washing the dishes, looking out at the view across the way. And, like, all of a sudden, I <laughs> see this woman's, this woman's naked behind, <laughs> literally at the edge of our yard. And it's just like, oh, oh my, my God. goodness. Just like, wow. you know, so I think that that kind of, and it's like, it's fine. But, like, I don't, I'm not going to complain about the tourists because basically tourism, even though I don't work explicitly, I mean, I do kind of work in the tourism economy, I guess, but right. um, I don't work in the local tourism economy. But it supports our lifestyle here because, you know, it means there's a supermarket and there's like a little movie theater and you know mm-hmm. there are restaurants that we like to go to, right? So I really value the tourists who come here. I would love for the tourists who come here and I would love for myself when I go other places as a tourist to remember that I'm in somebody else's home and to act yeah. accordingly. So, you know, when you're a house guest, you like, you know, you don't leave your towel on the bathroom floor and you like offer to help mm-hmm. with the dishes and you say, thank you so much for a lovely dinner and everything. Just kind of right. have that sort of approach when you're when you're traveling and, and keep an open mind and try to make genuine human connections with the people in the place where you're going. Yeah, I think there are lots. It's about lots of different things, but that's a good place to start, maybe. Oh, I like that. Just thinking of everyone as your global neighbors uh, and treating exactly. them accordingly. <laughs> well, this yeah. has been a great conversation. I'm so happy to have you, Paige. But there's one question I ask all of my guests. If you had to pick a song to convey, whether it's your life as a kind of expat, you know, as in a, your adult life, or some travels with your family, um, your time as a travel journalist, if you had to pick a song to convey that, what would it be and why? Oh, that thank you so much for this question. It's not one that I thought of before, but I loved um, having this prompt to, to think about this. And I'm going to 100% date myself as somebody who was a teenager in the late 90s. By saying, (laughs) I love the song, the Tom Petty song, Wildflowers. I don't know if you know this, but um, we're from the same era, so I'm familiar with it, but I can't hear it in my head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's kind of, you belong among the wildflowers. You belong somewhere. You feel free. Gosh, I'm not going to be able to kind of quote it at length here, but, but essentially it's about saying, you know, kind of go off into the world, explore the world, like have adventures, 
find a sort of a life partner to go along with you. And then kind of you belong in that home by and by. It says sort of toward the end, like at some mm -hmm. point you kind of settle down. And um, and yeah, I just think it's a really beautiful song about kind of following your heart and being open to new things and being open to finding yourself in different places in the world, you know, finding a sort of a life partner and then settling down. And I think that does, yeah, maybe reflect some of the the progress of my life so far. It's also just a lovely song. It always kind of makes me cry. <laughs> Sounds like a wanderlust anthem, essentially. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. Well, it's been great having you, Paige. Thank you so much for joining. Before we sign off, please tell everyone where they can find you on the interwebs. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I would encourage you to um, head over to bettertravelpodcast.com where you can find out about the podcast and listen to some of our episodes and sign up for our newsletter. Then um, I also have a website, pagemcclanahan.com, where I collect some of my journalism and stuff. And yeah, from those two websites, you can find links to social media, um, you know, Instagram for the podcast and stuff. But yeah, bettertravelpodcast.com is probably the best place to start. Well, thank you so much. We'll have all that in the show notes for listeners to check you out. And uh, yeah, thank you so much, for Paige, for being here. I hope everyone can take a little bit of the better travel mindset with them after this conversation. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Experience Junkies podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple or Spotify so that other listeners can find the show. Be sure to join our Discord channel. This is a great place for you to give feedback, talk with me, talk with our guests and other listeners, and share your Experience Junkie tales. Thank you for listening. Have a great rest of your day.